This podcast is published by MDA National to support doctors in managing common medico-legal issues. Hello, it's Norman Swan here. Welcome to another podcast where MDA National doctor members and expert staff share medical legal perils of wisdom, practical tips and interesting case studies. Today I'm talking to MDA National Risk Advisor Gay Nuttall on how to start up your own private practice. Gay is a registered nurse with extensive experience including primary health care, coronary and palliative care and more recently GP training and education. As part of MDA National's support and practice team, Gay provides practice assistance and advice to medical practitioners and practice managers to help reduce their medical legal risk. We work in the background behind a lot of um, the different parts of the organisation and we tend to deal with policies, processes, systems, procedures. We work proactively with our members looking at, for example, you know, their consent processes and consent forms. We might look at how they've got their practices set up to make sure that there's no sort of med legal issues that we can see with things like follow-up of test results, managing patients through the system, not losing them for test results. Privacy and confidentiality is a big part of what we do. And we also work with our members where maybe something has gone wrong that's caused issues for everybody and then just have a look at how the practice is operating and see if there's anything we can do to streamline it or update and train the staff or maybe suggest education for the doctors. So from your experience, and we're talking today about setting up your own private practice and what you've got to think about, what do people tell you is the most surprising thing they discover about setting up a private practice that they never thought they would have to do or that they never thought was so important? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think it's quite interesting where I think generally doctors who are setting up private practice for the first time probably haven't realised the depth and breadth of all of the different components that they have to think about and probably managing staff, employing staff and setting up staff systems is probably the one thing that they may not have been exposed to previously and is probably the thing I get the most surprised from, I suppose, yes. So even if it's just a reception secretary? These days, you know, you're expected to have workers' compensation insurance and, you know, your secretary should have a job description form and, you know, should really have an annual review and a three-month probation when they start. And and a contract? Um, and a contract, yes. We do encourage practices to have people on a contract because it does alleviate the issues when someone does want to leave. So that's contracts and you've presumably got to pay them under an award with the Fair Work Scheme. You can't just invent a salary out of, out of thin air. <laughs> that's right, especially for administration and nursing staff. So depending on the type of private practice, then, you know, they would need to be making sure that they understood what terms and conditions would be appropriate for that type um, of role. And the Fair Work Commission does have very good information on their website. And certainly also the Commonwealth Government have a very good business.gov.au website, which has some good information as well. So presumably you've got to think through what your day-to-day procedures are so that you've got everything covered. I, I sort of always say to, to doctors, think about what happens from the minute the patient 
is referred. So what happens? Does the patient ring? Does the patient attend? Who are they speaking to? And think about the process of the patient going through the practice and all of the different staff that they're exposed to and what systems and procedures sit behind all of that. So your booking system and so on and so forth, privacy, confidentiality, all that starts to kick in. And presumably advanced financial consent if, they're, if they know there's going to be a gap. Absolutely. And that's one of the things that we definitely look at. And, you know, things like under privacy and confidentiality, having new patient registration forms where the patient is very clearly explained how their information is used, how they may or may not be contacted. So, for example, if the practice uses SMS or email contact or mobile phone or what their preferred method is, and then being sure that it's, um, you know, if it's a private billing practice, that, you know, fees are paid on the day and that there are out-of-pocket costs, those kind of things. And informed financial consent is really important. So if you're a surgical or a procedural specialist, knowing what you're going to be up for if you get admitted for a procedure. Absolutely. And for surgeons particularly, they do need to take it to the next level. And we would usually recommend that they have, you know, a formal quote type financial informed consent process. And the AMA have got some very good documentation on their website, which is freely available for doctors to use. And that is very clear and quite useful. And what about insurance beyond your professional indemnity? Yeah, that's a good question. So, um, and I think that that's an area where people do get a bit bogged down because there are so many requirements. So, you know, they need their own professional indemnity insurance, of course, but then there's the professional indemnity insurance of any staff that they have employed, so nurses and administration staff. Then there's public liability, workers' compensation. Depending on how they've set up the business, they may need directors and officers' uh, insurance. You know, I usually do recommend that, you know, obviously we can deal with the professional indemnity insurance side of things, but I do recommend that they speak to a business advisor or an insurance broker about all of the other types of insurance that they may need to support them And how much effort do you need to put into informed consent for procedures? Um, That's a huge one. And I think it depends on how complex the procedure is. So depending on the area of medicine that the doctor's working in as to how complex. So if we're talking to general practitioners, we usually suggest that unless they're doing procedures like maybe, for example, iron infusions or um, more extensive skin excision procedures, they may be quite okay to have just an informed conversation, which is documented by the doctor in the patient record. But for orthopaedic surgeons, for example, we would definitely be recommending that it's quite an extensive process that begins with the patient receiving maybe an information pack about the procedure that they are anticipating having. And recording that you've given it contemporaneously, not after the event. Exactly. So, you know, you would have it as your procedure where it is a standard thing that the reception staff, when they receive the referral and the patient is booked for their first consultation and it's fairly clear as to what the referral from the GP is for, that they would be sent an information pack which would cover quite a bit of the information required. That would be ticked off on a protocol sheet so it has been done. That's right. So that would be a standard part of a procedure of um, for a new patient. So what if you are, and it's probably more applicable to general practice than other specialties, 
So you're going out into private practice, um, it's your first time, but you're going out and say to a corporate practice or and you're going to be a contractor rather than a partner. What sort of things do you need to watch out for there? So if you're the doctor that's coming into the practice under a contract, then you need to be very sure about how you're being employed and what you're responsible for as an individual. So if you're coming in as an independent contractor and you're on a percentage of billings, then you need to be very clear about what it is that the practice is providing and what you're providing. Increasingly, people are becoming, certainly general practice has been computerised for a long time. Specialists are increasingly becoming computerised. What do you need to do about security and confidentiality in a technological sense, you know, prescription pads, medications, computer systems, patient records, what was considered reasonable in terms of the actions you need to take to ensure security? So the Privacy Act very clearly states for private practice, which all health um, entities come under the the Privacy Act in private practice. And it says very clearly that practices and doctors must take reasonable efforts to keep data secure compared to the income and size of the practice. So for a very big practice that's got a lot of staff and a lot of income, the privacy commissioner would be expecting, you know, perhaps slightly more bells and whistles. But certainly even for your average practice with a few practitioners in there, what the privacy commissioner is suggesting is reasonable is being sure that they have up-to-date virus protection, malware protection. Double password entry, that sort of thing. Yeah, and making sure that everybody in the practice has their own log on and that no one logs on as a generic identity, like, for example, admin or nurse, that passwords should be changed regularly, that no one should have a list of everybody's passwords and that someone in the practice is responsible for making sure that the system is updated on a regular basis. The other aspect here is that, you know, you hope you're going to have a great relationship with every patient, but that's going to be impossible. You have a bad day and you're a bit grumpy, or a patient comes in and is grumpy for whatever reason. Um, Not everything goes well. How formal should you be and how explicit should you be about having a complaints mechanism in the practice? So, yes, I must say that as a risk advisor, I am a fan of having fairly formal procedures for staff to follow, even if it's a very small practice. What does that look like? It's basically, you know, a complaints procedure, which says things along the lines of all complaints, regardless of how petty they may seem, need to be taken seriously because they're obviously important to the patient, that it's better to handle complaints very quickly, that if it's related back to the practitioner, that we always encourage the practitioners to take ownership and speak to the patient as quickly as possible to allay their fears or answer their questions. If it's an administration process, then it's either the practice manager or the secretary who hopefully would have enough skills to be able to handle somebody who is having a difficult day then it's a matter of trying to deal with things verbally and try and get them fixed as quickly as possible. But if they do become a written complaint, then you need to have a procedure that's very clear about who handles it, how it's handled, 
how it's fed back to the patient, the patient is taken seriously, that it's documented, and that maybe they even need to ring their MDO to get some support on how to provide written response. So let's say you started, you started practicing in one suburb and you decide it's going well and you're going to start in another suburb as well. What issues arise there for a, for a double location, if you like? So, yeah, so for doctors that are billing through Medicare, they are required to have a location-specific Medicare provider number, which most doctors are aware of, but some do slip up on that and think that they have a provider number for their business, but it's not business-attached, it's location-attached. So if they were setting up, you know, a second practice, like you've said, then they would just need to apply to Medicare to get another provider number and they would be using that number to bill from that location. Gary Nuttall, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much, Norman. Here to support you, visit MDA National's website at mdanational.com.au or call 1-800-011-255 for tailored advice specific to your situation, career stage or policy.